Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today, in our special Civil War and Reconstruction series, we explore the extraordinary life of reparations advocate Callie House. Despite her status as a former slave, a woman, and a widower with five children and little formal education, Callie House defied convention and led the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief, Bounty, and Pension Association, one of the largest grassroots movements in African-American history. She traveled the country lecturing and organizing newly freed African-Americans in the quest to right the wrongs of slavery. Joining us today to discuss Callie House and her enduring legacy are two leading historians and Callie House scholars. Mary Frances Berry is the Geraldine R. Seeger Professor of American Social Thought, History, and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of My Face is Black is True, Callie House and the Struggle for Ex-Slave Reparations. Tiffany Patterson is an Associate Professor of African American and Diaspora Studies, Associate Professor of History, and Director of Undergraduate Studies in African American and Diaspora Studies at Vanderbilt University. She is affiliated with the university's Cali House Research Center for the Study of Black Cultures and Politics. Mary and Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, well, Mary, let's start with you. Can you first tell us a little bit about the title of your leading biography on Cali House, My Face is Black is True? Where does the title come from? Um, there's a quotation on the back, but can you tell us a little bit more about the context of the quotation? Well, Callie House wrote a letter to the federal government pension bureau and the intelligence operatives there when they started investigating her movement to find out why they were so interested in her demand for pensions for old ex-slaves and why they were investigating her and had issued orders that she couldn't send anything through the mails. And she didn't know what was in their files, like we know, I mean, I know, and people research it. But she didn't know any of that. She just knew that they were hounding her. And so she wrote them a letter and said, I don't understand why are you bothering us? And explained uh, why slaves, ex-slaves wanted uh, pensions, uh, were old and sick and said, I can't think of any reason. She kept trying to think of reasons. And she said, you know, I went to the school, the little grade school that she went to during uh, Reconstruction that was set up by charitable groups and so on, Freedmen's Bureau. And she said, I learned that people had a right to petition, and she said, petition, their government. And so I don't understand what the problem is. Uh, my face is black, it's true, she said. But that doesn't mean I'm not a human being. <laughs> and that I can't, we can't work on this issue. So I took the title from her letter to the government. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about who was Callie House? You know, her early life, she was born into slavery in Tennessee in 1861 while it was still part of the Confederacy. But tell us a little bit about her parents, her grandparents, her siblings. Callie House was born a slave. All, everybody in her family, they had been slaves and were slaves uh, at the time. Well, we think we can trace her father as fighting in one of the black regiments. And when the war was over, she was just a little kid. And when the war was over, she lived there in Rutherford County, which is about 30 miles outside Nashville. 
And uh, her mother had been a, a washerwoman before and was a washerwoman all this time. I had lots of kids and they lived there and they were very poor in that area. And she went to school because, as I said, the Freedmen's Bureau and some of the churches started black schools for the kids to go to. So she was able to get an early education. That's all the education she got. But she got some education in that in that area. And that's where she was. And she was there all during the war. And she was there uh, during uh, Reconstruction. Great. And Tiffany, can you feel free to add anything about Callie House's early life to what Mary said? And then can you tell us a little bit more about what was going on in the country and Tennessee at the time? And what was it like for African-American women in particular in the South? Well, I was born in the South as well, in Pontotoc County, Mississippi. And so as a child, I spent every summer with my grandparents. And one of the things I learned through the benefit of of going to school as well as going to Mississippi, how and what it must have been like for Kelly House in the late 19th and early 20th century. Even when I was a child, being in the South was a, a tension-filled experience. My parents had migrated to the North, as so many others did, but never lost ties with the Southern home. And going there, I was aware that something was wrong. So I, as I read Mary's book about Callie House, I kept thinking about how remarkable a woman she must have been because here it is the late 19th century and early 20th century at a time of uh, incredible violence and incredible murdering of black people to keep them from voting, for example, to keep them from living in certain spaces. And yet she took upon this uh, herself to have this, to organize this organization along with others. And she proceeded to speak for the people that she cared about, the soldiers who were sick and dying, and she would not give up. And so when you think about her life, her life is being carried out at one of the most violent moments in American history, as far as the way black Americans have been treated. We continue to be treated terribly, but in the late 19th century and early 20th century, it was absolutely horrendous. This is a subject that I teach, and our students now are so oblivious to how bad it was uh, and what it must have been like for this washerwoman, a widow, uh, raising five children on her own, and yet she was taking on the United States government. This is part of why we are endeared to Cali House to this day. Well, if you if you think about what was happening during the Civil War in Tennessee and what she experienced as a child and all the other black children and all the families who were slaves, the Union Army came to Tennessee in 1862, early in the war, and swept through Tennessee. They had some of the great victories in the war, which was depressing and went on forever with all more people getting killed than any war we've had. And the slaves, when they saw the Union soldiers come, tried to follow them. They did that everywhere. They did it in Tennessee, the slave men, women, and children. They called them the blue men because they had blue uniforms. And they would say, the blue men are coming. And they would try to follow them. And the women, including the people that uh, Callie House as a child lived along, did laundry and cooking for the soldiers. And the black man worked. And as I said, her father could be traced, Tom Guy, his name like other freedmen in the Union Army, and he served in uh, the 29th U.S. Colored Infantry Regiment, which was in that area in some of the bloody battles 
there and in the first part of the of 1863 so that there was chaos there was confusion there was bloodshed slavery had been terrible but now they had uh, chaos and disorder that they had to live with until the end of the war with people scattered and all the rest and the house family were there in Rutherford County. And as I said, her mother worked as a washerwoman and they managed. And she, from what she learned, the amazing thing is from what she learned in school, which she remembered since she didn't have that much schooling, what the constitution said. Today, there are a lot of people who don't even know what the difference between the constitution and the declaration of independence. They don't even know what either one of them (laughs) happens to be. There are always these quizzes on TV where somebody's asked on the street about a clause and they think it's, you know, something that they don't understand what it is or irrelevant. She knew, she never forgot those words that she read in those little schools about what the Constitution said you ought to be able to do. And so what she was trying to do was what she thought she ought to be able to do, not what everybody said she should do. That is amazing that she could actually, that she knew her First Amendment rights and then later on she actually went out and attempted to assert them as well. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we explore some of her later work with the association. And the period of Reconstruction, too, is definitely a period that um, many aren't aren't as aware of as as perhaps the Civil War. And um, the hope with our upcoming exhibit is to definitely explore the Reconstruction period and stories like Callie House and to help Americans understand a little bit more about the um, importance of these figures on that period. The the people who, the ex-slaves, when the Civil War finally came to an end, had made lots of demands about what should be done with the community. They wanted, of course, the right to vote, but they also wanted land. <laughs> they they felt that if they had land, and there were places in which we know historically some of the generals gave land to them, which was taken back when the when the war was over, and the Freedmen's Bureau had a provision that talked about giving land, but the land promise didn't come to fruition for most people. And, you know, Frederick Douglass said, and it was widespread knowledge among the people, that even the Russian peasants, when they were given their emancipation, were given a plow and some clothes. (laughs) And that for many of them who had nothing, uh, they were given nothing. And so the right to vote became a great focus, but also some kind of material support that would help them to move out of poverty. And education was one way to do that. A whole race went to school with people teaching each other and going to these little schools that were there to try to learn so that they could understand not just the Bible, but the Constitution and anything else that they came along to read. So what led Callie House, Mary, in particular to to becoming interested or to becoming aware of this movement, as you mentioned, for either for education for formerly enslaved people or for pensions? And who were the main kind of characters or ideas behind the original thought to have pensions similar to what the Civil War veterans were receiving? Well, she heard about the pension idea at school, at church. Church was the place where people went, the community went, the community gathered, where discussions took place. And she was at church and she heard about this. And what had happened was there was a white man who had 
gotten the idea of starting a pension movement. And his idea was not just to help the ex-slaves, but to help the people in the South. Uh, his idea was that if we help the people in the South by giving money to these former slaves, they will spend the money <laughs> in the neighborhoods and the poverty. His name was Walter Vaughn. He was the editor of a newspaper in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and was from Selma, Alabama. So this idea was that you could increase the financial resources of the whites in the devastated South if you gave pensions to the blacks, and the blacks would spend the money, and then the Southerners would get the money. That was basically his idea. So it was going to be a trickle down from the, from the government to the, to the slaves, ex-slaves, and then to the white folk. And he had even gotten his congressman to send a petition to Congress saying that there ought to be one. And he had a, white, a black guy working for him named Isaiah Dickinson. And they went around and met with people and went to churches to talk about this idea and to try to get people to pay dues and to sign up for this plan. So Callie House heard about it in church. That's where she heard about it. And to her, it seemed like a good idea, except she didn't like his motivation. <laughs> and she didn't like the idea that what they were trying to do was help the ex-slave, uh, the slave owners, and uh, keep the, the blacks enthralled to them because they would be tied to them economically. So she said, it, you know, it sounds like a good idea, but I don't understand why we can't do it ourselves. <laughs> so... We could ask the government, you know, we can petition the government and ask the government to do this. And Isaiah Dickinson, very fascinating guy, black guy, who had gotten discontented with Vaughn when he found out what he was up with, came and joined with her. And he knew the way they had organized. She didn't know anything about lobbying the Congress or anything like that. But he knew, and he knew what Vaughn had done, and this was the start, the germ of an idea that developed into a movement. Well, it's fascinating. And, and Tiffany, this idea for receiving pension, was this in, in lieu of or due to the failure of, for instance, the, the 40 acres promise that had initially been given? And um, I just want to read a quick quotation from Mary's book where she writes that, Freedom for Callie and other ex-slaves would have been very different if the Union had kept its promises to give them land confiscated from Confederate slaveholders. The reparations question would have been settled at once. I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that and what led to the genesis of this idea of, of the pension movement. Well, the pension movement was, in a, in a very important way, African Americans, in this case Callie House, taking it upon themselves to demand their rights as citizens of this country. She was watching older black men who had fought in the Union Army, sick, no money. She became aware of the, the cotton tax, which was sitting in the United States government. And what she was asking for was only a pittance. She was asking for the government to be as fair to African-American soldiers and poor people as they were to everyone else. The United States government did fail Southern blacks. They did not get any reparations at all for the many, many years that they had toiled in the South. They didn't get any assistance for creating lives and freedom. Callie House is remarkable precisely because she 
as, as Mary has underscored, she started thinking about this and she remembered her lesson. She, she went to church. She was part of the black community. They talked about these issues. And so for her, it, it seemed quite logical that the government should give a pension to those who had given their lives in defense of the United States and help to prevent the United States from splitting apart into two separate countries. I, I find it interesting that many are surprised that this washerwoman raising children on her own, poor, very poor, had the foresight, had the courage to say, no, you, we have a right to this money and we're going to lobby in order to get this money. This was very much a part of the struggle for African-Americans at the end of the Civil War. In other words, their, their struggle did not end. They continued to fight for their rights as citizens. And I think that she wasn't alone. Mary was saying a moment ago of the Dickerson and others who worked with her, they were not alone. And they were smart enough to understand when they were being played. Avon was playing them for his own objectives. And they said, no, we can take care of ourselves, but we have a right to have a helping hand in our effort to recover from nearly 200 years of slavery. Mary, you mentioned that some other prominent African-Americans like Frederick Douglass supported this movement for pensions, um, but there were others like Booker T. Washington. And in your book, you talk about John Mercer Langston, who was a congressman who, who opposed the idea, and instead they wanted to focus on bills to support education and political rights. Can you tell us a little bit more about why they opposed this idea and what were the responses of those who supported the idea for pensions? Well, the people who opposed the idea for uh, pensions, all of whom had good intentions and had other issues that they thought were a priority, uh, believed that the United States government would never give anything to blacks, and so that she was just working on something that could never happen, so therefore she shouldn't work on it, <laughs> and that the people should forget about it, because all it would do is irritate the white folk, and that if they got an education bill, which they spent a lot of time working on the Blair called education bill in the Congress to get the Republicans who they felt blacks were, who did vote and who were involved in politics were Republicans in the period long before Franklin Roosevelt became president because Lincoln, it was a party of Lincoln, that they could get them to pass this education bill and that all this whining about, you know, giving us uh, pensions was mistaken. Also, there were some charlatans involved in the pension movement. There were people just like Mr. Vaughn, people who thought this was a great idea to get some money and get dues from all these poor black people and raise some money. There are always charlatans afoot in every kind of movement. So they thought that it was just a waste of time and that it made the movement look that to get education and all the rest, diverted energy, that it was a distraction. And besides, there were some crooks involved in it. So they said, stop doing it. But they failed. They didn't get the education bill passed. They didn't get anything that they were trying to get passed. So that meant that that didn't work either. And so and Callie House's view was that they could work on all those other things. She wasn't opposed to people working on other things, but that we had a right to, black people had a right to some kind of rec recompense. As she says, you know, the wonderful thing is that her letters that she wrote to the federal government are there in the National Archives that you can read what she said, even though she didn't know what they were saying about her. 
<laughs> because they were saying, you know, who is this woman and what is she doing? And why doesn't she stop? She just kept on saying, you know, you guys, you know, they're, they're the slaveholders worked us to death. They beat us. They whipped us. And they got everything from us. And now they want us just to starve to death. And when you went out with her or looked at what she did all around the country, by this time, her children, uh, the older ones, could stay with the younger ones when she traveled. And she went all over the country to these chapters. And luckily, the records of some of the chapters, one in particular in Missouri, are extant. They're available. You can read the records of the meetings that they had in the church and what everybody said. And they wrote things in the, in the ledgers and said, you know, how old everybody was. And then we have the petitions which I have in the book, which show you the petitions that they sent to the Congress and that they stored them, the Congress stored them in the National Archives. It has the name of the ex-slave, the owner of the person, how old the person was. And she said she wanted to get every ex-slave in the country to sign their name so that if they ever got pensions, if we ever got reparations, at least the people who had been slaves would be able to get something. And so, and if people couldn't write, they had somebody else write their name in. And in that Missouri chapter, the thing that so impresses you, there were these old people, there was a woman in her 90s who had been a slave and who was still working for the white folk that she worked for when she was a slave because she had no relatives to take care of and she was still cleaning house and doing stuff to try to survive. But yet she belonged to this and she tried to pay her dues, which were $25 and then, I mean, 25 cents rather, and then five cents every now and then. And it even has notations of people who didn't have the dues and who would say, I promise to pay if I ever get any money. If I get a nickel, I'll pay it. It was just, it's enough to tug at your heart uh, strings. But if land had been given, if something had been given economically as a basis, maybe it wouldn't have seemed so urgent. And Tiffany mentioned the cotton tax. Not only did she send petitions, she used the money that she raised from this organization to hire one of the most distinguished lawyers in the country to bring a case in federal court to try to get the money from the Confederate cotton supplies that the union had confiscated to distribute it as a source of money. She had the foresight to see that this was something we could do. Uh, and the court decided that it was an issue that be, should be concerned, but because of co sovereign immunity, which is a principle that the government can't be sued unless it's willing to be sued, meant that we had to get the permission of the government to sue, and the government wouldn't give the permission. But it was a wonderful issue, and it highlighted it. The people, the black press, did not support what she did. The white press reported more about the meetings that they had than the black press did, mainly because people were scared. They were wondering what they were doing at the meetings. But it was an exciting time, and she was persistent. She learned the lesson of all movements that if you want to win something or to make an impact, you have to be persistent. That's fascinating. And in your book, Mary, you, you include copies of the actual petitions to Congress that you mentioned. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And people can go down to the National Archives and look at the and ask for the files on the movement and look at all those petitions that are in there. 
and they can see whether any of their folk are in there. Tiffany, is there anything that you want to add about what Mary was discussing on Callie House's involvement in this National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association? How did, uh, how did it get organized and how did she get involved and how did she come up with this idea about the targeting the proceeds of the contacts? Well, it speaks to her basic intelligence and consciousness for me. When I read Mary's book, it was three years ago that I read her book. I was fascinated with Kelly House and she thought about, thought in very political ways about the liberation that she was seeking to get for her own people. And the cotton tax was there. The cotton tax had been sitting there for quite a long time. And she said very simply, you can give us a pension out of that cotton tax without, you know, even hurting the government, hurting anybody else. If you care about the fact that black people are citizens. So she understood citizenship. She understood her rights and she was determined. And and one of the things that I got from reading Mary's book that I thought was also fascinating, she was not aware of how dangerous she became for the government, that they would go after her the way they did. They would put her in jail and because she was defending the rights of these ex-soldiers for the right to have a pension. For me... And not just the soldiers, Tiffany, any of the the black people who had been slaves, yes. Exactly, for anyone that had been slaves. And, you know, that's a remarkable story and it speaks to, I believe, why it's so important to continue to do research and to continue to continue to go to the archives to look for these individuals who were clearly thinking about their futures, thinking about her children's futures, thinking about black people's futures and what they needed to survive. Um, She was a remarkable woman. And the thing that is so fascinating also about this is it's true that she didn't know that they were in Washington having meetings about what she was doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the government was getting letters from white people all over the South saying these Negroes are having meetings at the church and they're talking and singing. And then they come out marching down and saying, oh, someday we're going to be all right. And we don't know what they're planning and plotting. You should stop them. And so the government sent intelligence officers out to the undercover people out to the meetings to see what they were doing. And when they came back, they said they're not doing anything except standing up talking about how they've been slaves and how they need to have some help and how poor they are. And they hope the government will give them a pension. That's all they did. And then they started singing and saying, someday we're going to be able to get a pension, we hope. And then they left. (laughs) So then they didn't have anything. But then they said, well, She's going to run the Negroes wild. There's this one letter from the Pension Bureau where it says that we got to do something about this woman because she is setting the Negroes wild, making anarchists of them. And if they, when they find out we're not going to give them any pension, we don't know what they'll do. So we got to stop her. And she did not know that there was, after that, an effort to ensnare her and stop her from what she was doing. And she was busily going about the work she was doing. And Mary, you talk also in your book about how the government and the Postal Service in particular were impeding the work of her and the association. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the way they decided to ensnare her was to say that she was defrauding the old ex-slaves that, and that she used the mails to send out flyers of meetings and information and communicate with all the chapters. And they had chapters all in the South as well as in the North, out in Oklahoma where the black towns were. 
anywhere in New York, there were chapters in New York, anywhere there were black people who had been slaves, there were chapters. And she would communicate with them as well as traveling around. So they issued a postal fraud order saying she was defrauding black people and she couldn't use the mails anymore. And she didn't know why they were doing that. So she wrote him another letter and said, why are you doing that? I don't understand what's going on. Of course, they never answered the letters. And then she had to use Wells Fargo and other things to private uh, mail people, which was a cost to the organization, and travel more frequently than she did to keep in touch. And she kept on doing the work. And so finally they said that they were going to prosecute her for using the mails to defraud. And the fraud that she was charged with, and they did prosecute her, and took her into federal district court in Nashville, where the headquarters of the movement was, and charged her with, at the time when she knew, should have known that the federal government would not give pensions to black folks, Negroes, she was mobilizing them and collecting dues from them and doing work to try to get pensions for them. And she was doing that at a time when she should have known that this was not something that was ever going to be done. So she was misleading them and collecting their dues and, 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 and the like, using the mails to defraud. When I told a friend of mine who's a big lobbyist in Washington about that, he just laughed. And he said, if you could go to jail for trying to get Congress to do something they don't want to do, I would have been in jail a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and half the time they don't do whatever it is. And sometimes I don't think they're going to do it myself, but I'm trying. So anyway, they prosecute her. She had an all white male jury. The black people were in Nashville and around surrounding areas were out there in crowds outside crying outside the courtroom. They told lies on her. They told said that she had a whole lot of money and she lived richly when, in fact, she lived in the shotgun house over there by where the reservoir is still in Nashville, a poor neighborhood, and lived there all her life in Nashville. And so and didn't have anything, really. Um, but they did all of this. And then they said that she didn't really have an organization. It was a fake organization. It was uh, because there were no chapters or anything. And at the time that the government went into court and said that, they had in their files the records of these chapters. And the one in particular that I told you about in Missouri, which had very detailed records. But they told the federal district court judge that there were no records of any chapters of this organization, that it was just something she made up in order to send out something. So they convicted her, put her in prison. She was in prison, by the way, at the same time that Ilma Goldman, the great uh, communist anarchist leader, was in the same prison and who was also a seamstress. And they were both seamstresses in prison, sewing stuff. <laughs> and that's where she was. And they kept her there in prison. The movement continued. The chapters kept on trying to work, even though she was in there. And when she got out, finally, she went back to Nashville and I found records of the chapters still working in the 1920s and have some information about different chapters in the book. And some of the people who are known to folks who do African-American history, like Queen Mother Moore, Marcus Garvey and others, they are followers. And in Queen Mother, Mother's uh, case, she was from New Orleans. She was in the New Orleans chapter, the ex-slave pension movement, before she became a reparationist 
and a very important one. And they used the using the mails to defraud charge against Marcus Garvey when he started his movement and charged him with the same thing. He, you're trying to do something that you know the government is not going to do, and you're organizing all these Negroes to do it. Tragic story. And then she died in Nashville from cancer and was not didn't have the kind of treatment, although we don't know what would have happened. She was poor. She didn't have anything, really. Well, what, what's so interesting about that is, you know, when you think about the Constitution and the, the, the Bill of Rights and the amendments, uh, the Reconstruction Amendments that were passed, you know, in order to start righting the wrongs of slavery, the 13th, 14th, and 15th in particular, you know, those are the ones that come to mind. But here, Callie was relying on the First Amendment and her yes, assembly and petition yes. rights, um, right. which, which also were crucial in the civil rights era when groups like the NAACP were attempting to litigate to vindicate their civil rights yeah. as well. Absolutely. The boycott movement and like that. That is just absolutely important and significant to know. She knew she knew her rights. <laughs> she learned that and she remembered it and tried to act on it, which is another example of how important the Constitution and constitutional freedom can be for people. But mm-hmm. how when it interacts with discrimination against people based on their race or their gender or whatever it is, these characteristics, uh, it can interfere with your ability to exercise your First Amendment rights or any other kind of rights. So it's the, the good thing about the Constitution, and it's also the possibilities of evil that take place when people lie and cheat and steal and distort and want to stop a movement. And they wanted to stop her. And it's also amazing It's just amazing. And I think Professor Patterson said this at the outset, that here is a woman who is leading a movement, which is the FBI or the the precursor to the FBI, said was the largest grassroots movement of of black folk that they'd ever seen. It had more dues-paying members (laughs) than they had ever seen. And yet it was a woman. It's a woman leading this movement. And people who have been looking at it, some historians, they try to say, well, she didn't really lead the movement. Isaiah Dickerson led it and she was just helping him. But Isaiah Dickerson died shortly after he started working with her. So he couldn't have been helping while he was dead. Yeah. Tiffany, uh, Mary mentioned that sadly Kelly House died in poverty and the movement sort of petered out a little bit after that, or at least her organization did. What What's the status of the movement today? Is there anything that's been going on? I know um, Mary also mentioned Marcus Garvey and what he and what his work was, um, but is there any, any updates? Anyone continuing Kelly House's work? Yes. Um, the idea for reparations didn't die with her. It continued. And it continues to this very day. I think about two or three years ago, I was at an association for the study of Afro-American life and history. And there was a whole, Mary was there as well. It was a whole panel on reparations. There has, the idea of reparations has never died. What we didn't know, and, and Mary's book told us, that the source of that movement was this woman. And I want to, like Mary just did, I want to underscore that. This ex-slave woman who would not give up on the idea of what was right. And she understood the Constitution. She understood her rights. And so it did. It, it never really died. It continued within the intellectual traditions and the political traditions of African-Americans. Now more than ever, it has become a global issue. Scholars in the Caribbean 
are writing. Uh, Hillary Beckles, who's uh, wrote a book on reparations and recompense from the British. So it's not dead. And it's controversial. I must say that just like it was in the 19th century, just like there were those who opposed Cali House on various grounds. Uh, it's not going to work. It's, you know, why are you asking for this? We really should be about education and so on and so on. But the idea of what is owed to us for all of those years of unpaid labor that we gave to this country and on, our, on the backs of slaves, the country was built, continues to be a very strong idea. But I think the opposition to Cali House from Blacks and we we understand the opposition coming from whites. It also speaks to the fact that African Americans are, are are not a single people. We are diverse in our thinking of how to solve the the problem of our discrimination in this country. And Callie House ran up against that in the in the late 19th and early 20th century in her efforts to get this pension for Black people. That should not be so surprising. It's but. That kind of debate has been going on in the black community for a very long time. There is still going to continue to be talk about what is owed to us, given what we've given to this country. Well, it's time for some closing thoughts on this extremely important discussion. And so, Mary, I want to start with you. First, Kelly House was truly an untold story until you wrote this book. So thank you for that. And I just want to close with a, a final question to ask, what do you think is the most important thing that all Americans should know about Callie House, and why is it important to know about her and her work? Americans should know that here the possibility, the potential that someone can make this kind of contribution, despite their lack of, you know, she didn't have any PhDs or <laughs> master's degrees or law degrees or anything, but she learned what she was taught. And she read the Constitution. It's the importance of the Constitution as a basis for making arguments about how rights should be given to people. Even if you don't fulfill the principles in the Constitution, how important it is to keep working for those principles. Also, that even though she was incongruous in terms of her gender at the time and everything else, she worked. Also, Americans should take away from this that there were all these poor people who had the courage, poor black people who had been slaves, who were old, who had the courage to have their names put down on some paper and sent off to Washington where they were vulnerable just because they put their names down in the communities where they were. They had the courage to ask and that their, the debt is still owed to them that was never paid. You can argue about whether there should be reparations for people who are walking around now who are descendants of slaves and who were never slaves. But these people were slaves, <laughs> and they did, in fact, ask. And the answer that they got was no, and that maybe there ought to be some kind of recognition of them as well as recognition of her. And I'm so happy that Vanderbilt chose to set up this program in her name and that I was able to be there when it was opened. But those are the things, the, 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 human, the possibilities of human beings making a difference, and that the reparations movement, in fact, still lives. Thank you so much, Mary. Tiffany, same question to you. What is the most important thing all Americans should know about Callie House, and why should they know about her and her work? For the same reasons that we decided to name our research center after Callie House. We set up the center four years ago, and then we finally 
began to talk about a name and Callie House. I had just read Mary's book and I shared it with Tracy and we wanted to name it after a woman and a woman from Tennessee. Apparently, there's been efforts in Tennessee for a long time to recognize her as one of our great Tennesseans and it had not happened yet. So Cali House Research Center for the Study of Global Black Cultures and Politics for us is a way to recognize her heroic efforts in the 19th and 20th century, early 20th century, to address the concerns and the needs of poor black Americans. We use this house to support our students, to support research, particularly research of women. We use it to support other efforts within the university, in Latin American studies, in the history department, in philosophy and other places. But we wanted at the center this woman. We should know, for, for us, the fact that, as Mary has so wonderfully outlined, here's a woman who had a primary school education, who remembered her rights, who remembered that she had rights under the Constitution, and she was going to use those rights to get freedom for African Americans. We want to push the image of this moderately educated woman who was courageous enough to take on the federal government. That's what one of the things that Americans should know about Callie House. She read the Constitution. She understood her rights and she was going to get her rights and continue to fight for those rights in spite of the fact that the government went after her, put her in jail. She was ill. She did not get anything materially for herself. She only fought for the rights of, of, of her community. That's what I think should be known about Callie House. And she therefore becomes one of the finest models for liberation that we have in this country. Mary and Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me for this fascinating, moving, and inspiring discussion of Cali House. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Apoorva Krishnan. We the People listeners, if you like this podcast, rate us on iTunes, tell your friends, and write to us at podcast at constitutioncenter.org. Finally, the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.